Okay, you're going to need a Bible. So if you don't have one, there are Bibles over on each side against the outside wall. Uh, I'm not going to notice if you get up and grab one. If you if you do have a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 15 this morning. Mark chapter 15. If you don't know where that's at, wait for your neighbor to find it, and then just grab their Bible and switch with them. I'm sure they'll understand. <laughs> so this morning, uh, we are going to look at Mark chapter 15, the trial and the, um, not the crucifixion, but the trial and the flogging of Jesus. And James Denny, in his book, The Death of Christ, writes this. He writes, the simplest truth of the gospel and the profoundest truth of theology must be these words. He bore our sins. Because without such, there is no Christianity. The idea that God so loved the world that he gave his son to bear the punishment for our sins, Jesus took our place on the cross, that should have been you and me hanging there. That punishment should have been us. But Jesus did that. Jesus went to the cross for us. He bore our sins on the cross. Peter writes this, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. It didn't cost God silver or gold to redeem us and save us. It cost him his son. It cost Jesus his life, his life for ours. He was perfect, holy, righteous, a lamb without blemish or defect, and yet he bore our sins. The Bible says that it's the knowledge of God and his love for us that is intended to draw us to him. What greater love could God have shown us than to take our place on the cross? That's what we're going to look at this morning. So Mark chapter 15, we were in Mark chapter 14 last week. Pastor Dwayne uh, taught us through the end of the chapter. And as our custom, we're going to pick up right where we left off. We'll go verse by verse. So Mark chapter 15, verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. Last week we studied that Jesus was arrested at night, that he was taken to the, uh, to the, before the chief priests and the Sanhedrin and all that. And it seems like they needed the whole night to decide what to do with him. You see, they had already decided that they were going to kill him. Uh, back in chapter 11, after Jesus turns over the money changers' tables, they had decided... They were going to kill him. But they needed to have a plan on how, how to do that. Because they couldn't simply kill him outright. It would spark too much outrage. And they did not have the jurisdiction under Roman law to execute somebody. So they would have been accused of murder. And they didn't want that. They didn't want the attention. So, so they had to come up with a plan. They had to come up with a, a, a solution of how to get rid of Jesus and not come back on them, not come back to haunt them. So their, their only problem was that their complaints against Jesus were all theological, were all, you know, he's claiming to be God, which the Romans didn't care about. They, they could care less. So how do you get the Romans to sign off on killing Jesus? How do you get the Romans 
to sign off on getting rid of Jesus. So they come up with this plan. They, they, they had to get enough attention from the Roman government that Jesus would be crucified. They had to get the Roman government to buy into this. And because they didn't have the jurisdiction or the authority, they needed a pawn. And Pilate became that pawn. The plan was to make Pilate the pawn. And it must have seemed pretty genius at the time for, for two main reasons. The first is, like I said, they didn't have the authority, but Pilate did. Pilate had the authority, and he could squash any insurrection that would rise because of this. Also, a death sentence from, from Rome would pretty much squash the disciples coming back after him, too. So they, it was a perfect. It was a perfect plan. The only issue they had now was, could Pilate be persuaded to, comp, to co- cooperate? See, the, the Jewish leaders knew that Pilate would, wouldn't care about the religious laws. So they had to find something. So what they came up with is, He's claiming to be king of the Jews. He's claiming to be king of the Jews, and he wants to overthrow the Roman Empire. That's what they came up with. They make their plans. They bind Jesus. They hand him over to Pilate. So so who is this Pilate? This is the first and only appearance in Mark's story of of Pontius Pilate. And we know from historians that he ruled over Judea as a governor uh, from about 26 to 36 A.D., He obviously was appointed by Rome, but basically he was a governor. His job was to keep the peace. Now, keep in mind, the back of your mind, two things. He he answers to the emperor, and his job is to keep the peace. That's going to become very important in this story this morning. So, So they hand Jesus over to Pilate, and Pilate asks Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? To which Jesus replies, You have said so. Now, that seems a little interesting. He doesn't affirm or deny the accusation. He doesn't, he, he just kind of answers, you've said so. Well, Mark here records a simple little answer. But John, in John 18, he gives us a few more details that might be important to this. Now, let me read. Uh, John 18, 33, he writes, Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? To which Jesus replies, is that your own idea? Or did others talk to you about me? Jesus gets very personal with Pilate here. He asks him, is that what you believe about me? Or did somebody else tell you that? This is the question we all have to face when we encounter Jesus. Christians are not made by osmosis or even association. We don't get grandfathered into being a Christian because our parents were, or because we live in the Bible Belt or anything like that. It's got to be a personal relationship with God. And just as Jesus asked his own disciples, who do you say that I am? Jesus now kind of asked Pilate the same thing. What do you believe about me, Pilate? Do you believe I'm king of the Jews? Is that what you believe? Or is that what you're simply being told? It's the old, kind of the old liar, lunatic, or lord argument that was made famous by C.S. Lewis. I'm sure some of you have heard this. Uh, The argument's based upon who you believe Jesus to be. C.S. Lewis lays it out this way. He says, let us not say... I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we cannot say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. 
you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can't shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him just being a great moral teacher. He's not left that to us, nor did he intend to. The question is this, who is Jesus, or who do you believe Jesus is? There's only three possible answers, liar, lunatic, or Lord. If Jesus was a liar, meaning if he wasn't who he said he was and he knew it, then he's a liar and nothing that he says can be trusted. If Jesus was a lunatic, meaning if he wasn't who he said he was but he didn't know it, then he's a lunatic or a madman and cannot be believed. But if Jesus is Lord, meaning he is who he says he is, then he is Lord and he is to be worshipped and obeyed as such. Them are the only three options we have. Jesus turns this trial around on Pilate, and he says, is that your own idea, or did others talk to you about me? This is the question that we face. What do we believe about Jesus? And who do we believe Jesus is will ultimately determine where we spend eternity. As for Pilate, he never gives Jesus an answer. He just moves on. Mark chapter uh, verse 3. Uh, the chief priest accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. As the chief priest accused Jesus, he just stood there silently until finally it seems Pilate had had enough. And Pilate's like, go ahead, answer them. Say, say something for yourself. Defend yourself. But Jesus remained silent. His silence was not from defeat, but rather Jesus remained silent out of submission to God. He was submissive to the will of God as it was prophesied that he would be. In Isaiah 53, 7, it was prophesied that the, that the Messiah was oppressed and afflicted, yet did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus was obedient to God in going to the cross, and that included being silent when falsely accused. Why did Jesus have to endure all these accusations? Jesus endured all these accusations in order to prove that he was without spot or blemish. You see, before Jesus died on the cross... God's people, year after year, would have to offer sacrifices for their sins. And they're, they're reminded throughout the Old Testament that these sacrifices had to be pure, spotless, without blemish. And, and, and basically, the life of an innocent animal for your sins is what would happen. But you know who it was to examine the animal to make sure it was without spot or blemish? The priests were. And who is here standing accusing Jesus? The priests are standing here accusing Jesus, and they cannot find any fault with him. In fact, at one point, Pilate does say, I find no fault in this man. They put him on trial. They, they inspected his life. They could not find any spot, spot or blemish. He is the spotless lamb. He's done nothing wrong. None of their accusations will stick. Jesus stands there silently, 
obedient to God. He did nothing wrong, and he says nothing. Now, because of his silence, Mark tells us that Pilate was amazed. Some translations would say that he marveled. The word here, amazed, carries with it kind of a note of admiration, which means in that moment, Pilate might have admired Jesus for just standing there taking that. Pilate simply tolerated the Jews. He put up with them. But he was amazed by Jesus. But simply being amazed by Jesus doesn't mean you believe in Jesus. This word amazed is not used very often through the New Testament. One place in particular, though, that it is used is when Jesus is healing great crowds. It says, Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. They laid, him at, they laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they gave praise to the God of Israel. That's found in Matthew 15, by the way. The same amazement of Jesus had two different outcomes. One man was amazed and did nothing, a whole crowd was amazed and praised God. And Pilate, as we will see, starts to look for a way out of making a decision about Jesus. He doesn't want to make a decision about Jesus. So what is our response? We might be amazed that this man went to the cross to die for us, but does that change our beliefs about him? If you don't know Jesus here this morning, I'm telling you about him. We're going to talk about Jesus here. You might be amazed by Jesus, but does that amazement turn into belief? I'll let you ponder that one. Let's keep moving. Verse 6. Now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. Mark says that there was this custom during this festival that Pilate would release a prisoner to the, to the crowd. Uh, we don't know who requests Pilate to do this. We don't we're not told who, who comes to Pilate and reminds them of this. We're not told any of that. But Mark does tell us one little interesting thing, that Pilate had figured out that because of the self-interest of the chief priests was the reason why this was all taking place. That's interesting that Pilate kind of puts two and two together here. I don't, I don't believe he was a stupid man or anything. I, I believe he was very intellectual and, and he was smart enough to know, but that still didn't equal salvation. But by this point, Pilate understood what was going on. No self-respecting Jew would ever turn over one of their own to the Roman government, let alone one who was going to be in fighting against the Roman government or who was supposed to take over the Roman government. So they would never turn over Jesus. So Pilate assumes that there's another motive here. And at some point, he realized it was out of self-interest. These, these guys were jealous. They wanted this guy gone. And instead of making them more upset by just releasing Jesus, he realizes he gets an out. He gets a way to get out of this whole mess. And, and it kind of seems like Pilate's done at this point. Maybe he's hungry. Maybe it's lunchtime. Maybe, maybe he's got places to be, people to see. 
but it kind of seems like he wants to release Jesus at this point, like he's ready for it. But one of the other things we, that's happening here, we don't see this in Mark, we do see in some of the other Gospels is Pilate's wife had sent him a message. And she said, don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. And at this point in the whole process, it seems like Pilate's ready to wash his hands of Jesus, ready to just let him go, but he's trying to find a way to placate the crowd to, to, so he doesn't get in trouble with the Roman Empire. See, his job, remember, was to keep the peace. And if, if, there, if, if, if he's not keeping the peace, they're going to hear about it, and he's going to get in trouble. So he's, he's trying to keep the peace. Pilate understands what's happening. He sees this loophole. And as an opportunity to release Jesus, and besides, who in their right mind would choose a murderer over Jesus? This guy's done nothing wrong. He's, he's a good teacher. He, a lot of people follow him. Who would choose a murderer over Jesus? Interestingly, everyone involved, the chief priest, Pilate, they all had their own motives. And every decision in this story is made out of self-interest. They all have their own personal reasons why they want this over and done with. Pilate was trying to keep the peace and his position. The, the chief priests were trying to keep their position. The only difference was the chief priests actually hated Jesus. Pilate was just indifferent to him. But in John chapter 8, we see why they hated Jesus so much. Let me read this to you. Uh, there arose a dispute between Jesus and the religious leaders where Jesus says, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, and we have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we will be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. I am telling you, what I have seen in my Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they said. If you were Abraham's children, Jesus said, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the work of your own father, Jesus said to them. If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. This probably sparked some hatred in them. But he goes on. You want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. There was, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? I am telling the truth. Why don't you believe me, Jesus says. Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is you do not belong to God. Jesus told them, you're seeking to kill me because you really don't know God. He calls them out as hypocrites. He says, you belong to your father who is the devil, who is a liar and a murderer. And now Jesus' words are ringing true because what are they doing? They're lying about Jesus and they're trying to kill him. If there ever was a better illustration of actions speaking louder than, the words, than words, this is one of them. 
These guys claim to be men of God, and yet here they are lying and plotting murder. Totally disregarding the law of God, by the way. Two, two commandments. Thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not commit a murder. They're breaking both of them right here. And these are supposed to be the men of God. Jesus is hated by the chief priests because he outed them for being the hypocrites that they were. And he tells them, you don't know God. The key here is, do we know God? Do we know who he is? Do we know what he's done for us? And do we believe him as such? You either know God and obey him or follow him as such, or you don't. It's that simple. Either you accept Jesus or you reject him. There's no third choice. We cannot live in the middle like Pilate tried to do. No decision is still a decision. Pilate could have said, y'all are wasting my time. Slammed his gavel down or whatever they did back then and said, I'm done. He's an innocent man. Let him go. You guys need to go pound sand or whatever. Get out of here. But he doesn't. In fact... He doesn't want trouble, and apparently he's not concerned enough about the truth and justice, but he's more concerned about what the crowd thinks of him. Pilate may or may have not fully understood their reasoning as to why they wanted to kill Jesus, but he's no idiot. He understands that they brought an innocent man to him. But that still doesn't change his decision that he made that day. There's this man named Barabbas, a murderer. And then there's Jesus, who's innocent. Surely Jesus is the only clear choice, right? Well, interesting thing about this man, Barabbas. His name in Hebrew means son of Abba or son of the father. And then if that wasn't coincidence enough, Matthew in his account tells us that his given name or his first name was Jesus. So in one corner of the ring, we have Jesus, son of the Father. and the other corner, we have Jesus, son of God, the Messiah. And this only heightens the drama because Pilate now asks the crowd, which Jesus do you want? And that is something we face, isn't it? Which Jesus do you want? Do you want the Jesus that the world offers? Or do you want the Jesus that God has offered? When the crowd asked for Barabbas, and when Pilate releases Barabbas, his release meant that he was also acquitted of all charges. So here's the tragic irony in all of this. A convicted murderer is set free declared not guilty, and in his place, an innocent man is declared guilty and sentenced to die. Now, if you haven't made the connection yet, a sinner is set free, and an innocent man takes his place. In biblical theology, this is called substitutionary atonement, meaning that Jesus substituted himself in our place so that we could be made right with God. Jesus took the full punishment that we deserved. Those were our sins that sent him to the cross. Those were my sins that sent him to the cross. I deserved that punishment. 
The Apostle Paul puts it this way, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Peter furthers this by saying Christ died for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. You see, this morning, we are Barabbas. Each and every one of us is Barabbas. Jesus took our place. It should have been us on that cross. But Jesus stepped in and took our place. This is why what we believe about Jesus and God is so important. Because if we believe he was just a good teacher, then he died in vain. If we believe that he's the Son of God sent as a substitutionary atonement for those who put their faith and trust in him, then by his death he bore our sins so that I could be made right with God, so that you could be made right with God, so that we have access to God. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, the one who substituted his life for ours. Jesus, the innocent one, became a substitute for you and me, a sinner. We are Barabbas. The crowd demands Pilate release the murderer. And in verse 12, Pilate, not sure what to do, he says, What shall I do then with the one you call king of the Jews? Pilate asked them, Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate, but they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. There was probably something going on in his conscience that that he was struggling with. But he asked the crowd, what shall I do? This is why Pilate is an accessory to Jesus' murder. He was too worried about his own position. He was too worried that if the crowd got out of hand, he could get in trouble. And, And time and time again, we see him trying to appease the crowd rather than doing what's right. His wife warned him to have nothing to do with this man. His conscience is telling him this is wrong. Yet he gives in to the crowd to save his own rear. Pilate, trying to reason with the crowd, asks what he's done, and they get louder. They demand, their demands get louder, and they, it's like they're yelling over him. He has no power in this situation. He's lost all control. And wanting to satisfy the crowd, he releases Barabbas and has Jesus flogged and hands him over to be crucified. Now, out of consideration that it's almost lunchtime, I'm not going to go into any gory details here. Uh, I think a lot of us have seen the Passion of the Christ. We kind of know what's going on here. But I will explain this. Flogging was cruel preparation for crucifixion. It was meant to prove a point. And there was no mercy given. The Roman guards, they didn't care. They were just doing their job. Historian Josephus tells us that a prisoner was stripped, bound to a post, and beaten with a leather whip that had bits of bone and metal woven into it. And I'm sure you can imagine what that, what that does. It was so brutal that some prisoners didn't even make it to the cross. And this is what Jesus endured for each and every one of us. Why would God knowingly send his son to go through that? 
Could it be so that we see the seriousness of our sin? Could it be that we see the punishment that would ultimately have been placed on us, that he took for us? Peter, in his sermon on Pentecost, speaking to the Jews, says, God knew what would happen. He prepared and planned this long ago. Jesus dying a brutal death on the cross did not take God by surprise. This was the plan from the beginning of time. This is exactly how it was supposed to play out because sin is serious and God cannot allow it to go unpunished. Jesus bore our punishment on the cross. Hebrews 7 tells us that Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for our sin. Willingly offered himself. The simplest truth of the gospel must be the words, he bore our sins. That's what Jesus went through for you and for me. Pilate gives in to the crowd rather than allowing justice to take place. So verse 16, the soldiers led Jesus away to the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns, set it on him, and they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knee, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe, put on his old clothes, and led him out to crucify him. After being flogged, Jesus is led away to be crucified. But not before the whole company has their fun. This whole company, there could have been 600 guards there. Not that it took 600 to contain Jesus or to arrest Jesus, but there could have been upwards of 600 guards there. And they gather around and they mock Jesus. They ridicule him. They spit on him. They beat him. They put a crown of thorns mockingly on him. They put a purple robe on him mockingly. This wasn't to say that he was a king. It was a parody. They were making fun of him. The whole ensemble that they dressed Jesus in is intended for one purpose and one purpose alone, to mock him. Because the Roman citizens would have, would have been appalled by the idea that the Jewish people would have a king. And so to help squash that so that that never came up again, they made Jesus an example. And then they continued to mock him by falling on their knees and paying false homage to him. This was not out of worship. This was out of mockery. Mark 10, Jesus tells his disciples what's going to happen to him. Mark 10, 34, 32 through 34. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Jesus predicts this very scenario played out. He's handed over to the chief priest, condemned to death, and handed over to the Gentiles, as we saw in verse 1. Then the Gentiles would mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, which all happened in the last four verses. Jesus was mocked, spit on, beaten, scorned, insulted, ridiculed. For what? All because God must judge our sin. He bore our sins that day. 
But because God loved the world so much, he gave his one and only son. Jesus bore our sins. He took our punishment all because God loved us. This is not the story of defeat of Jesus the Messiah. This is the beginning of his victory. Even though at this moment God's enemies seem triumphant, the story's not over. Everything that happened was according to God's plan for, to work out for our salvation. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. Jesus endured such suffering because of his love for us. God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. These soldiers, Pilate, the crowd, even the chief priest, didn't take Jesus' life. He handed it over to them. He laid it down for you and for me. He willingly bore our sins. At this point in the story, Jesus is reclothed in his own garments and taken out to the place of his crucifixion. Lord willing, if he doesn't return, next week we are going to study the crucifixion. But I want to leave you with this. We can put ourselves in any one of these people's shoes. Any one of us could play the part of the chief priest who did not fully know God and out of self-interest totally missed the Messiah. Or the crowd who was easily swayed and led away from accepting Jesus as the Messiah. Or Pilate who was too concerned about self-preservation and what other thought, thought about him to accept Jesus as king. Who we believe Jesus to be is an important factor in how we believe. There's one character that each and every one of us are, and that's Barabbas. We talked about that. We are the murderer. We are the adulterer. We are the, the liar, the thief, the cheat. And Jesus took our place as our substitute to take the punishment that we deserved. The simplest truth of the gospel is that he bore our sins. Do you believe that here today? Amen. Have you accepted that? Is Jesus your substitutionary atonement? For the believer, we know that. We've believed that. But do we live in the forgiveness that Jesus offers? Because he bore our sins, past, present, future. Do we live in that forgiveness that he bore our sins? Do we understand that we're forgiven? There's nothing that we can do to separate us from the love of God. And, and as believers, the only response we have to this story, the only response we have to what Jesus did for us is to get down on our knees and beg for forgiveness when we've fallen, when we've tripped up. That's our only response, not to run from God, not to hide from Him, not to think, oh, I've I blown it this, this time, He can't forgive me this time. He bore our sins, all of them, willingly went to the cross, 
And our only response is to humbly get on our knees and ask for forgiveness. John says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just every time to forgive your sins. He will forgive you every time. You know, the backslidden Christian, the person that says, oh, I can't walk into church, the ceiling's going to fall on me. No. God is a God of love. He did all this so that you could experience His love. And as believers, sometimes we don't experience God's love because we're too focused on what we've done, how we've blown it. But Jesus bore our sins, past, present, and future. The sins of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And He wants that. He did this for a relationship with us. So as the worship team comes back up to close us in the last song, I'm going to be down front. I know there might be some other pastors and elders that could come down front. If you need to ask for forgiveness, if you need prayer for anything, come down front. We'll pray for you. uh, But know this. Jesus bore your sins so that you could be forgiven and made right with God. And don't let anything keep you from that. Amen? Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we we look at what you've done for us. We look at what Jesus endured for us, Lord. And it's eye-opening. It's a reminder of what we should have gone through, what we deserve. Lord, forgive us for those times when we doubt that you're able to forgive us even when we sin the greatest, Lord. Forgive us of those times where we run from you because of our sin. Lord, may we walk in your forgiveness today. May we trust you and understand your love for us and understand more of you, Lord. Lord, we look to you this morning. We look to you to lead us through this next week. Lord, we pray that your spirit would fall fresh on each and every one of us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.